This is Dune Talk, a DuneNewsNet.com production. Join us now for the latest Dune news, reactions, and lively discussions. Hey there, welcome to the show. As the contact continues to the release of Dune Part 2, we're zooming in on two of the women who will play key roles in the second movie, Princess Irlan Carino and Shawnee, a young warrior leader of the Fremen. What were they up to in the years before the events of Dune? Yes, we're doing a book review. This is Marcus, your editor at DuneNewsNet.com, and I'm here with two other absolute Dune experts. Mark, thanks for joining us again from the UK. Hi, great to be back. Uh, lots of exciting Dune news uh, going on this week in the run-up to part two and uh, some uh, book reviews as well, so excited to join you. Great, and we're happy to have Rachel appearing on Dune Talk for the first time. Uh, she's led or co-hosted various long-running podcasts, including one about Robin Hood's Real Eldlings and another one on Game of Thrones. Uh, Rachel, welcome. I wanted to give you the opportunity to tell all of our viewers and listeners a bit about yourself. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about Princess of Dune. Um, yeah, I am a longtime book podcaster. So happy to talk about my favorite books in the world, Dune. No one ever wants to talk to me about Dune. Um, and uh, you can find me on the internet at Darth Rachel. And you may know me because I made a guild rep cosplay. And uh, Rachel, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about your Dune story. What, what got you to this amazing universe? Uh, like many, I discovered Dune when I was in middle school, which I think is a really formative time to read the book. Um, and I just loved it. It was the perfect mix of of weird and cool. And, you know, I've always loved science fiction and it just it just caught me. Right. The evocative, uh, you know, nature of Dune, Dune, the planet as a character um, and how it's just sort of perfectly fits every kind of moment of my life in a weird way. You know, um, whether it's going through something difficult. Right. When I tell myself, oh, you know just go through the litany of fear. In fact, I have it tattooed on my arm. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's just, it's always struck me as an amazing story. And I read it every year, actually. Yeah, and you pointed out that the guilds have uh, been outfit uh, behind you. Uh, yeah, and yeah. people may have seen you appear at uh, various conventions. How, how was that whole experience and how did you put together that? So it's funny because I, you know, I made a still suit like many did. Um, but the second I saw Denise, you know, part one, the two minutes that these guys are on stage, I thought, oh, gosh, it would be really cool to make a space pope. Uh, so, you know, it was kind of like a dream. Uh, and then my partner and I were like, you know what, let's just do it. It can't be that hard. Uh, and then we have a friend online you can find at um, Super Daft Brothers who helped us make the helmet file. And then we modified it. I made all the soft parts. Uh, it was really fun. It's really difficult, um, especially if you don't have a vacuum form table, uh, which I didn't. Um, so I had to send that out to my friends to get to get the actual dome made. Uh, but I dyed it, painted it, you know, attached it to the helmet. And yeah, it was really fun. And people don't expect you to be able to make something like that, right? Because it didn't really exist in real life. Like even the dome wasn't yellow in real life. So it was nice to bring something to life that doesn't actually exist yeah it looks looks re re really amazing well, well well done yeah i'm sure like uh oh, thank you it's really impressive to see you walk through, walk through the convention it's super fun yeah because people really react even if they don't know what it is they run up to you to ask you what it is and then you can tell them about dune 
hopefully we'll get to see more of them in part two. Yes, uh, so I'm hoping for navigator glimpses. Yep. We'll see. Fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah, we're also going to touch on the guild uh, in, in our review today as, as well. So uh, yeah, that's, that's great. Let's go ahead and dive into Princess of Dune. The Duneverse. Books, comics, games, collectibles, and more. Mission, today we're re reviewing the book Princess of Dune. It's the latest entry into the expanded universe written by Brian Herbert and Kevin J. Anderson, published by Tor Books this past October. This is a fully standalone prequel story. It's set around two years before the events of Dune, uh, making for a timely, timely tie into the ongoing movies. Uh, so let's uh, first kick things off with um, overall thoughts and reactions to, uh, to the books, uh, things that uh, maybe stood out to you uh, overall. And there won't be spoilers in the first part of this episode. So Mark, I, I know that you, you read the book uh, much earlier than, than the rest of us with an uh, early review copy. So uh, I'll let you kick things off. Yeah, thanks. Um, so one thing I've often said about the, uh, the various prequels and midquels and interquels that we've had is there's a lot of focus on House Atreides um, and we've got this entire universe of interesting people and events and we're always focused on the Skywalker saga kind of thing. Um, so it was refreshing to actually have a book where the word Atreides is only mentioned once in the entire book. Uh, and I've always liked Princess Irulan, particularly the, the miniseries with Julie Cox. So to, to have a book where she's one of the central uh, characters, uh, along with Cheney as well, uh, I, I was really happy that we are branching out a little bit, not too far, but um, it isn't just House Arconan and House Atreides battling for the Empire. Rachel, what were your thoughts on the book? I actually agree. I was going to say the same thing. It was nice to read a book where the Atreides were not centered in the story at all. Um, you know, I mean, we still get Princess Irulan and we still have all of these tantalizing uh, plot points that point to further you know, adventures and contact with the Atreides. But they're sort of an invisible presence in this novel. And we do get to see more, um, more people, more plot lines that sort of swirl around that central storyline. Yeah, and, and I think for, for me, it was great to see a bit about the, the lore, like, of course, those, those two characters, because uh, when, when, when we're in Dune, you know, we're introduced to, to Cheney and we don't see much of, uh, you know, what happened before uh, Paul meets her, of course, in the movie, we, we got to see a bit more of that. And in Princess Irlan, we're seeing her uh, narration throughout the story, whereas we're seeing, like, you know, at the beginning of the chapters, but we don't actually see her, like, in person, I guess, until the, until the end of the movie. So it's good to see those characters, what, what their, their normal everyday lives were, were like um, in those years before. And also, um, yeah, a, a lot more of the court intrigue on, on Kaitid, because that's also something, you know, we, we get to see it from here, from a distance and like get, get pictures of, you know, there, there's, there are things happening and it's like, you know, an amazing world, um, but we, we don't actually see the, the day to day, like the interaction between, you know, the, the royal uh, princesses, the, how, how they act together as sisters, what their relationship with, with their father. So I, I really enjoyed all, all uh, interaction on, on Kaitane, and we also got to see more of the guild as well. I loved all the scenes with Irulan and all of her sisters because, you know, we, we get to sort of see them as adults later uh, in the series, but it's nice to get like a look at how they interacted sort of before they are fully formed, you know, players on the board. I yeah, really there's a lot of uh, later on in the books, we get a lot of more sibling rivalry between. Yeah. Uh, the sisters and so it's nice to see 
as you say, that, that family life, if you can call it a family, yeah. um, <laughs> before the events of June. Yeah, for, for, for example, we, we, we got to see, uh, uh, like more of wet when Sissia and like uh, her, her interaction with, with Yerlan. And of course she, she's going to be like only pure several books up down the line, but she, she also plays, plays a key role there. So it was interesting to see that this, this backstory and how that there was a, also a rivalry between the, the two sisters. That was, that was intriguing. Yeah. And it's lovely that they were not set up immediately as like antagonists towards each other, like each. You kind of understand the, the the decisions each of them made, so it's not as if Wencesia is automatically a villain. Um, so that was cool. I liked that. I was prepared for her to just kind of stroll on onto the stage as <laughs> as like an arch villain, uh, but she actually was really amusing uh, and fun to read about. I like the uh, the setup of the, the decay of the empire. That's something that in the sequel books, you know, the explored more about how Shaddam has kind of let the his imperial might sort of in the military uh run to ruin a little bit with imperial favors uh, and we actually see that play out as an important plot point uh, in the book so that that was kind of nice to tie in those threads that have been uh, developed in the uh, House of Trades House of Conan uh, prequel novels and, and actually have that uh, have some impact into the storyline and also, without giving too much away, how something like that could happen. Because, you know, when you think about the ultimate control that Shaddam ha has over the empire and, it, you know, the the kind of hand-in-hand -hand walking that they do with the guild and all the rules, it's like, how could any of this happen? How could anybody even try to rebel or think to rebel? And it's it's nice that it, it kind of gives us a plausible path for that. You know, there, there, there's there's a lot of interesting angles into like how how the military is set up because of course we know that uh, the emperor controls the the Sardaukar and they're you know the most feared fighting force in the galaxy but apparently the whole whole military isn't isn't like that so there, there's a lot of you know like uh, lesser sections of the military and people who have, have gained their their rank maybe who weren't as deserving of other titles uh, so, so that's also uh, explored here in here in the book. And also just a little bit of a taste of space fighting, which <laughs> I loved. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's something we, we don't see uh, see a lot of in, in, in most of the stories. No, we don't. I mean, I think that, like, I am trying to remember, I haven't read The Butlerian Jihad in a long time, but I feel like there's some scenes like that in that novel. Um, but yeah, it's nice to just kind of like, oh, yeah, this is like ships in space fighting. That's cool. <laughs> Yeah, we don't really get an awful lot of um, sci-fi battles in Frank Herbert's novels, and that's certainly something that the prequel and newer novels have expanded on into sort of tradition, more traditional sci-fi epic space battles and large armies. Yeah, so we're we're going to go into more details into the events of the book, and towards the end we're going to get into the conclusion and all of that. But I guess to to give an indication, I would say that this this book really works well. I say it's, it's best after someone has read uh, the book Dune, uh, because then you'll appreciate the characters more and like uh, that, you know, you're getting those insights into them. Uh, having said that, if you're someone, someone who's reading uh, or watching the movies and you haven't yet read the book, this could work as, as a tie into the, to the movies as well. So the, the first um, topic that I wanted to dive into is that, you know, we, we, we see a lot of uh, Cheney and Irlan in, in, this, in this book. And as mentioned, like, you know, much more than, than we, we saw, um, 
in the original novel. Um, so Rachel, in, ter- in terms of how, how you, the characters were, were portrayed, what, what do you, did you think of, um, you know, the, the way that we got to see them like in the personal day, day-to-day lives? Yeah, it was great. Um, you know, as Mark said, we don't really get to see much of Errol in, in the first Dune novel. She comes into her own in later Dune novels. And then if you've seen the 2000s miniseries, which I love, it's great. Uh, you get a little bit more of an expansion of her character. So it's really nice to see her centered in in the novel and not just as an accessory or a pawn or someone who interacts with Paul and, and you know, and the rest of the Atreides family. Um, she has her own inner motivations, her own goals in life, um, you know, and she's been brought up under extreme pressures, uh, you know, in in the court on Kaitain. And she's she's aware that her father is probably not, you know, at the tippity top of his of his abilities. You know, he's letting things slip. Um, and she knows that and she's in line for the throne. So she's she's got goals. And I really like that. Um I just, I think, honestly, I would, I could read a whole novel just about Irulan. Yeah, and on the, um, there's some nice sort of similarities between Irulan and Cheney as well because they've, they're both sort of fighting against their father's expectations of them. So Cheney, uh, her father, Leah Kynes, wants her to follow on in his, uh, in his footsteps as the uh, ecologist of June, and so Cheney, that's not something that she sees as being a true Fremen. And likewise, Irulan is fighting against her own father who really wants a son. That's, that's all Shadam wants. And so Irulan isn't meeting his expectations. And so, you know, Irulan wants to do more. She can do more. She's, she's got all these skill sets, but she's sort of brushed aside in the imperial politics. Uh, and that, that sort of mirroring of conflicts between the two even though they're from opposite ends of the Imperium and um, stuff like that, they are, they're really fighting very similar personal battles. Absolutely. The daughter as sort of an underestimated tool for an ambitious father is such a great, I'm going to say the word trope, but I'm very trope positive. I love a good, I love a good trope. And I think it's great that, you know, we're, we're seeing the different ways that, that Chani and Arulin can go against those expectations and still sort of use the tools that they've learned by trying to meet those expectations to do their own, you know, their own plot lines. Um, For example, you know, it's always sort of been a little bit of maybe a plot hole. It's like, why isn't Chani like the next in line to be the Imperial planet, you know, planetologist? Why is she a Fremen fighter um, if her parent is so highly ranked? So uh, it's nice to see why that is true and what she's learned and how, what she's been up to on Dune before before the Harkonnens leaves. Uh, and then, you know, the same thing with Irulan. She's she's all she's also sort of underutilized in that first novel. It's like we know that she's the one that's sort of writing down everything and giving us her point of view of how it all works in this giant puzzle. Uh, and it, it's nice that they both get to be smart and tough. Uh, Violent on occasion, uh, yeah. Yeah, there are some interesting uh, parallels between the, their, their two stories, but uh, at the same time, uh, Chedi is, is much younger uh, in the events of the book, so she's only fourteen year old when this is happening. Mm-hmm. So it's it's so relatable because I guess she's getting the pressure from from other people her her own age, and you know, like saying like, 
oh, your, your, your father, you know, he, he's uh, part of the Imperium as, as well. And, you know, like, uh, he's not a true Fremen. That, that's, that's actually sent by her, uh, her half-brother a few times. Um, and then she, she's also, you know, like weighing, okay, like she, she, she does uh, love her father and she, she wants to uh, live up to his, his name, but like at the same time, she wants to be a true friend. And so there, there, there's that uh, conflict within her. And, and it's exactly that, that age, right? That's really re- relatable that she, she's going, going through all this confusion and, you know, like what does she want for, for herself? It's similar, but in some ways opposite as well, because uh, Irulan wants to follow in her father's footsteps. She wants to be emperor effectively. <laughs> And Janie doesn't want to follow in her father's footsteps, but they're both sort of fighting against the expectations. And both running headlong into what we know, because we've, you know, we've, you know, well, I've read the rest of the books. <laughs> so I know like how close both of them are to essentially the center of the universe and the center of the main plot um, and how much power they ultimately wield and don't wield. And, you know, how that relationship between the two of them, because it's like, it's really great that they, all like they sort of almost cross paths multiple times um just because it's great foreshadowing yeah they've uh, the bright herbert and kevin jameson have done quite a, a clever dance because we know that they don't meet in june yeah. you know we know that they've never met before in the events of june and yet we want them to meet and we want their paths to cross and it seems almost inevitable and there's always, you know, there's never a face-to-face confrontation between them, even though they both influence the uh, the life of the other person through their own actions. And I appreciate we never that. we never get to any sort of um, uh, contradictions from the original novel. Yeah, and that, I really appreciate that because they are doing a dance, you know, in ter- KJ and and Brian, because it's we they know that we know. Right. We've read all these books and they've written, what, 20 extra novels to kind of beef up all of this lore, some of which is a little bit contradictory. And but they're also writing a novel for someone who may be new to the universe. And so they don't hit you over the head with the foreshadowing or, you know, those connections to uh, I think there's definite um, references to House Carino and House Atreides, the house books, uh, which came out many years ago. Um, And then other I think like of the more recent prequel novels. So that's really cool. I really enjoyed how it wasn't so heavy handed. Like you could be a completely new reader and have never read any of those books before and read this, this book. And it's fine. Like you're not confused because I haven't read every single one of the the prequel novels. Yeah. I, I, I've, uh, I've admitted that like I, I only got um, back into the doing novels, like catching up with, with things like a couple of years back. So I haven't read all the prequel novels. So, so I read the, the house trilogy and uh, the um the the, the more recent uh, novels the Kellen trilogy and uh, this one and they they, they they do fit together i know that there, there have been somebody saying uh, thinking okay like there, there's a lot going on in, in those years but it, it makes sense because it's, you know like it's a huge universe there's uh you know like billions of worlds uh things going on all over the place and you know the the emperor and these houses they're really at, at the center of it so it makes sense that there's a lot of turmoil and like various things going on, especially on, not only in the water scale, but also within the families as, you know, these, these children are, are, are going from teenagerhood into uh, adulthood. Uh, I wanted to draw a sort of connection to architecture. So we know how Dune is always uh, like a character. The planet Dune is always a character. But there's also this great um, use of architecture as character. So you know, when we're on Kaitain, we're in the palace. So there's always this feeling that you're just 
down the hall and in another room from another major conversation or another major plot point that you may have read about in another book or that you know is happening concurrently to this. And the same thing happens on uh, on Dune when they the, all these characters end up, uh, you know, in in the Fenring's house, right? And they're just off stage. They're just down the hall. They're just in another room. Um, and I love that because we know that place is really important in Dune and not just as like a setting, right? Or as uh, a symbol, but as literal like plot, plot movement because knowledge is power. So you have a character who's, it's like Fenring knows all this stuff, right? And he kind of comes in and out of the narrative very loosely. And you know he knows things, but he's not saying it in the room that you're in with the characters that you're following. Um, so that that's cool. I, I, I really like, I thought it was very well kind of woven um, and the use of the spaces that they created. You know, not as much maybe description of what things look like, although I really enjoyed getting the descriptions of Kaitain. Um, and like also of the of the the souk market that they have to run through at one point uh, in the other plot line. Yeah, it's cool. That's interesting to to see that the through line of of Con Fenring and Lady Mark McGuffrey because they they've been uh, expanded on like since since the first house trilogy um, that that they wrote, and you see that the, the story continues to progress. And he he is an important character, like he, he and Mark Margot and. Uh, um, yeah, it's, it's great to see that their their story develop over time. That, that they're not just you know like a one time appearance in, in a Dune novel, but now we we really get to see. Uh, yeah, and their absence them. is felt right. Like yeah. just just like you know, because you're either in their house or you're in their office, and they are in both places. It's great. It's like they cross over into both plot into both point of views. I should say because it's Johnny's point of view and everyone's point of view. Uh, and I I really enjoyed that. The, the other difference that I wanted to call it, like between uh, Cheney and Princess uh, Irlan, is uh, as mentioned, uh, Cheney is is young, so she she's an early teen, and uh, on on the other hand, uh, Princess Irlan, she's already twenty six years old at, at at this time, and uh, you know she has an ambition, you know she she wants to become the the, the emperor, she she wants to get uh, married, she wants to know like who who's going to be like uh, you, you know the, the person who, who she's going to be married to, or like what position that that's going to put her in. But like in in her case, the emperor is putting things off. You know, like he's he's holding her as almost a bargaining chip uh, to to see, you know, the, the maximum he can get out of her in terms of an alliance or like the, the most uh, strategic uh, marriage uh, that he can get out of there. So like there have been many people who have proposed marriage to her. Like and we're, we're going to get get into uh, one of them in the book. But um, that's it's interesting. So so she 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 still has uh, at twenty six. She still doesn't have a few. A full view of like what's what's coming up, you know, like what what lies ahead for her future. But it's a you can't really blame the emperor on that because, or you know, cast him in a bad light. Because if you think about Duke Leto, he was exactly the same. He wasn't getting married. He kept he was keeping Jessica as a concubine because he wanted that bargaining chip for himself, for House Atreides, on you know a potential alliance with another house. So you can fully understand where the emperor was coming from. Uh, and if, if the emperor is in the wrong, then Duke Leto is in the wrong as well. Point, like you might even think that Irulan is is a tempting bride for Leto. You know, if he if he has those ambitions, then he may that may be that may be a good choice, but you know, a scary choice maybe for for <laughs> Shaddam. But for Leto, that would have been a great move. So, but let's. Uh... Get, get into some of the new characters uh, from, from this book. So earlier in the book, we were introduced uh, to, to the character of uh, Boko Zenyan, and he's 
name that we, we haven't heard uh, uh, before. And he basically walks into the, the, the throne room. He, he has uh, requested an audience with, with Shaddam. And uh, Shaddam at first, he's thinking, okay, like, you know, why should I give him uh, an audience? But, you know, Zayn has, has a really exemplary military record. But unlike a lot of the, the nobles, like he's actually um, earned his, his rank through, uh, through uh, distinguishment in, in, in battle. And then he comes flat out and he, he says that he, he wants to ask for Princess Ireland's hand in marriage. That was a pretty uh, yeah, surprising moment to write, write in the novel. That, that actually made me laugh because uh, you, you don't see, that's one of the things that I didn't see coming at all. You know he's got something planned, but that's like the, the audacity of that move. <laughs> and you, you can just imagine, you know, silence in the Imperial throne room was hearing a pin drop <laughs> yeah no the the audacity of moko is is his main character trait i think just mm -hmm. every single thing he did i'd be like oh sure you're gonna get away with this maybe <laughs> i don't know what makes you think you can do this <laughs> he just like would he just kept getting away yeah. with it yeah he's a really interesting character i think even towards the end of the the novel i was like uh, you know, try, try to understand, like, you know, what, what's driving him in some ways. I mean, like some of his motivation that is explained, but there are still, still some things even towards the end. It was like, you know, like, why, why did you approach it the, um, that way? But yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting because he, he sort of re represents, um, as, as you were alluding to earlier, Mark, that, that corruption within the, um, uh, within the Imperial, uh, military. And, uh, you know, that, that a lot of people have gained their ranks just through their, their noble status and they, they're maybe not necessarily competent or the best people in the job and there's a lot of tension because then you have these i guess these second line officers who are they're the ones who are actually doing the work and like uh, keep keeping the uh, imperium uh, safe and they're they're the ones who are competent uh, but they're not getting the, the recognition and they're sometimes even being put in dangerous uh, situations uh, they're leaders because of incompetent leadership yes and actually i thought that Mako was an amazing character because he doesn't appear anywhere else so they could have a lot of fun with him and make him do things and go places and talk to people and it didn't really impact that kind of like center lore you know canon um and <laughs> i also thought he struck me as like a really good character if you were going to like role play any of the dune games because he's what the son of a poor noble house so he has like a little bit of rank, a little bit of education, a little and a lot of ambition. And but he's still like a working, you know, a working person in 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 the Imperium. He doesn't he doesn't just kind of live off his laurels. He he makes good decisions. He got promotions. He has people who are loyal to him um, and he feels that he should be rewarded for the work that he has done. Um, and then his reactions to maybe not getting the 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 rewards that he requested <laughs> um is fun it's just it's just like a how, how can how much can you piss off the emperor <laughs> yeah he's as you say he doesn't appear anywhere else so that they've got some freedom with him but it's also one of the sort of uh, the traps of a, a prequel novel or midquel novel is the the board has to be reset the end of the of the plot line so you know that you know some events aren't going to happen and, you know, new character that you've never heard of before, is he going to survive or is she going to survive to the end of the novel? <laughs> because yes. 
you know that yeah. they are completely disposable in some ways and you know you, you kind of kind of takes the um the edge off you know some poignant scenes when for a sacrifice or an unexpected death and it's like well it might be unexpected but is it really <laughs> we've never yeah, heard of yeah. this fremen before <laughs> something like this and where so where were they this whole time? Yeah, yeah I yeah. agree. I think if I had any critique, it does take a little bit of the tension out with some of these newer characters that you've never seen before, or even like decisions that are telegraphed. Because yeah, we we know how it ends up. And but you know, I think if you've never read Dune or you're new and you've only watched you know the latest part one movie, right? You have no idea what's going to what's going to happen. So it could be a little bit more thrilling. That being said, I thought that some of those poignant scenes were nice even if it didn't like hit me as emotionally as i think maybe it was intended um because they gave us a lens into funeral rites grieving processes and, and things that have we've seen a little bit of um especially on the fremen side uh, and and later later novels but i don't know i i, I kind of liked um the glimpses of how things are done you know canonically and you mentioned funeral rites there, and that's something that we've seen before for the for the Fremen with uh, Jamis's funeral. Uh, but we also see uh, the guild doing a funeral rite as well, which is uh, a surprising start to the novel. Um, but for me, it was a it was a sort of a plot point that just sort of drifted away and came back at the end. It, it felt like it should have been more, particularly with its prominence at the start. Uh, and that the, the funeral scene also introduces or, or weaves in characters, I should say, from some of the other prequel novels as well, um, which was you know a nice tie-in. Uh, but as I say, I just I felt that the guild story was almost a, an afterthought that was sort of tacked in in the middle of the end and a bit in the middle. It just didn't gel for me. It did feel like there was maybe another scene that was cut and maybe saved for another novel. Mm -hmm. um, that you know that's kind of how it did feel like i was waiting for a chapter to pop up about the conclusion of that arc and it never really happened um yeah you pointing that out made me realize that yeah i mean i guess it was it was interesting from the perspective of getting more lore about the, the guild because apparently that um we see the funeral of one of the guild navigators and that's the first time ever that uh, the damper and irlan are witnessing that and they're like uh, special guests and is something that normally they would have would have never seen so it was a great honor that the guild was bestowing on, on them in, in this case and even then they didn't get to see the whole uh process as well and then as uh as mark you were mentioning uh, at the beginning we have that the, the end of that funeral process i guess where they they basically dump the guild guild navigator's uh body into a spice float so like it's returning to where it came from in, in a sense um so that that, that was a really intriguing well, we'd, we'd love to see that, like, uh, you know, if it was a film, not cinema. Yeah, and it's also intriguing because it connects to Liette, right? Uh, you know, and because they're both sort of interested in different sides of the spice kind of process. Uh, so that that was a good parallel. A fitting, I guess. Weird. I would never have guessed that, given what <laughs> I know of the Guild, but fitting. And then, yeah, then, then we see that the Tilaxu also figure into this, uh, this story. So always, uh, they're always uh, there skulking in the background somewhere <laughs> or doing yeah. something. Yeah. Because the, as mentioned, like, um, the, that, that plot sort of, it does seem like a third, uh, plot that, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't go, 
go into as that is other, but uh, yeah, like the, the body of the Guild Navigator is taken away at the last moment. And then that's sort of, there's some investigation going on at the side, but really we only get the conclusion uh, towards the end when, you know, like the Galaxy bases it discovers. Um, but yeah, like, like it's um, re really uh, interesting to see how the Galaxy, they're, they're always like trying something. It's, it's like, you know, like bring someone back from, from, from the dead. Or they're, you know, they're, they're trying to create some, something uh, uh, new and like gain power in, in some ways, but. Yeah. And hor the, the description of that was not, was a little horrible. Like, it's just yeah. like things in tanks, things growing, yeah. things looking into, into your eyes and just kind of being like, kill me. <laughs> <laughs> like a little bit of, just like a, just a drop of a horror scene just there in the end. Yeah. We've never really got much of the Telexu um, on screen. Um, there, there was a Max Avery's recently uncovered David Lynch's June Messiah script, and that that would have had the Talaxu, and I'd have loved to see Lynch's take on that because that just seems a match made in heaven um, really, or I hell, depending on your point of view. But <laughs> um, yeah, may, maybe we'll get to see more of the Talaxu in uh, Villeneuve's uh, universe. Fingers crossed on that as well. I mean, I think we've gotten like the weirdest ways that it can happen with the 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 spider person and, and yeah that i guess is supposed to be wanna i don't know i think that's a theory <laughs> that people have seems weird to me but um yeah like just, just everything's just off just put together <laughs> wrong little <laughs> horrific to look at uh yeah and but we again that plot with the tylaxu like we kind of know it can't go anywhere because they're not really ready yet right they're still kind of cooking up their plots that they, they can't be suddenly able to rival the guild with you know during the plot of dune mm -hmm. so i kind of knew that that wasn't gonna oh yeah it, it has been something that sort of has been going through uh the, these prequel books because also in the earlier house trilogy we saw that the tracks who were involved in in actually helping the, the the previous emperor try to find an alternative to the spice, but of course, you know like it, that that's that's something that didn't bear uh, bear fruit yet. But uh, yeah, they're, they're definitely always doing something. Like yeah, and we get a little glimpse of their home world, um, just you know, just for funsies, which which was good with the confrontation between uh, them and the guild at the end. They show up and they're like yelling at them <laughs> i love any anytime any of the the guild members would show up to yell at someone or provide them with a scroll and sarcastically read it was because <laughs> they just have so much power they have no respect for anyone <laughs> they just they just come up and they're like yeah this is how it's gonna be i know it's not fair i don't care what are you gonna do tell me no no of course yeah. not so they're just super I op that does also sort of play into the um, discussions in the Dune community about, you know, why don't they, the Guild just claim Arrakis for themselves? Um, and there's there's lots of reasons why that uh, why that's the case, partly because it would be a boring story if they did. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the, the Guild, um, when they throw the weight around, can be quite fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. It's for plot reasons, but, it, you know, yeah. I think the way that they use religion throughout, right? It's, you know, there's a, there's almost a disregard for religion when you read Dune because it's often set up as, well, this was created to control a specific group of people. But then you have 
groups like the Guild who clearly have a religious order that they follow, even though they know everything. So um, I like the tension that they put there as well, because it, it does make it seem like, you know, not everyone is very logically motivated. They do things because it feels right or because they follow a tenant that makes them do that. And so, yeah, maybe they just have a great respect for Arrakis and they don't want to just occupy it. Um, even though they seem to know exactly how it all works. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, although that's a good point. They, they do seem to treat it almost uh, as a religious aspect in terms of the, the, the spice and, and the worms and that being part of their cycle. And, and I thought that was, you know, fascinating, not only in this, in this book, but also some of the earlier prequels, how we did get some insight into how the guild navigators uh, come about and like how difficult it is to become a guild navigator, like the, going through the, through the test, because we, we, we talk, uh, we hear about this Tirlo, one of the star guides, and he's apparently the, the great grandson of, of the guild navigator who's, who's died, but like, after his, his great grandfather became like a guild navigator, like no one else in his family was able to succeed anymore. You know, he became a star navigator, which is an important uh, position, but uh, you know, he, he, he didn't pass the, t the test to become a guild navigator. And even his sister died during, during that, that test. So it's, uh, really shows how it's, it's very rare, you know, like, you, you, uh, like in, in the same way, I guess this parallel in some way to, uh, creating the ultimate human, the, the quizzes Hadarak in, in the same way to lesser extent. You know, becoming a guild navigator, that's a really rare occurrence. And it's, uh, you have to be, I guess, a peak human uh, to be able to succeed at that test. Yeah, we, we have seen that in one of the prequel books. I, I forget which one, but there's two brothers and they both sort of go on the, go the tests and, and one of them one of them passes and one of them um, sort of rejects the spice, if you like, uh, and is unable to become a navigator. Uh, so that, that is certainly something of the law that uh, Kevin G. Anderson and Brian Herbert have expanded on into the, sort of this this weird aspect of dune probably we we don't really get proper aliens in dune they're all they're all human based you know the tylaxu and the guild are sort of those weird extremes of human evolution um that they are quite alien in that regard essentially doing the same thing with different tools right like yeah one is all biological what is sort of technological where they're they're messing around with things um and I guess if you were Denis, then the the guild the guild rep behind me would maybe be what is going around and talking to people and you know making proclamations and um, you know somebody who's sort of on the path to being a navigator but not quite there yet. So they require spice, but you know they're still maybe a little weird looking, uh, but not enough to to scare yeah. anyone. Um, it was surprising to me, and I and I have not read that I know about the novels about the two brothers, one one becoming a, a navigator and one not. But it was surprising to me that they were almost that open with how, the differences, because I had assumed um, that a lot of those things were secret. And I mean, I guess like if you're the emperor and and his children, you get you get to see things that the regular folks wouldn't get to see. Um, but I guess it's also plot reasons, right? They want to show us the reader, so we get to we get to witness. In the original June book, Paul, when they're on the Highliner, Paul wants to go and try and see a navigator, and Leto says, "Yeah, don't do that. You'll we'll get kicked out of the Imperium if you if you try that." So there's obviously this huge secrecy around the guild navigators themselves. But, uh, the prequel books have kind of peeled that back a little bit, so you know. 
the emperor does and Irland do go to the funerals and more people do sort of seem to know what's going on and can kind of sneaking in and around and and know some of the, their secrets. And shaking hands with guildsmen, just reaching out and touching yeah. them. Gosh, that's like, what? <laughs> um, yeah. Seems to me like they should all be encased yeah. <laughs> so that you can't see how different they are. I know, um, I think it's in the house books where they talk about how the Betty Gesserit all also wear a secret contact so that you can't tell that they also have the eyes of the Ebod, the, the blue within blue indicating spice addiction uh yeah so there you know there's lots of little details like that that you know i makes me feel like oh all of the changes that spice makes at a certain level are secret yeah um, i guess unless you're the emperor I, I don't know how much of the contacts is just to sort of cover up some plot holes because in the the first tune book um mohan is speaking to paul on the gong the jar test about cheney and paul says you know she's got these bright blue eyes and he doesn't say like yours. <laughs> right, right. So it's clear that, you know, the Reverend Mother doesn't have blue within blue eyes as she appears to Paul. And yet later on, we discover that she's a true sayer. And so mm -hmm. technically should have those eyes. She should, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she's <laughs> hiding it. And there yeah. must be an advantage to hiding that because otherwise yeah. people would know that, you know, that you have this weakness or, you know. Yeah. Well, Frank hadn't decided that yeah. Reverend Mothers would have blue eyes at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's true, right? We're 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 sort of expanding on, like when I said that some of the lore contradicts itself, especially yes. in those early novels. We just kind of go for it, and I think that's one of the things that drew me to Dune in the first place. Is so much is so weird and just never explained, um, and then the prequels sort of fill in those holes. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's a little like I don't even want to know that. I didn't <laughs> need to know how that happened. Um, but I think in terms of Princess of Dune, it's not. Because those characters, it's like sifting sands, right? Those characters are not, we know where they end up. So there are rules, but we can kind of play with what goes on between the, those two points in time. And so we get to expand upon their character if it's not, even if their actions are not impacting the overall plot as much. Okay. It's one of the traps of the prequels is you try and explain everything. So, you know, you've got the Indiana Jones ones where it's like that's how he gets his whip that's how he gets his scar that's how he yeah, gets yeah. his hat all of that happens in 10 minutes and it's like did, did Indiana Jones not do anything else for the next 20 years or something um and like you also get that in the prequel books with the the Benny Gesserit with a lot of their the sisterhood of June with a lot of their discoveries take place in a generation like well what happens for the next 89 generations of this breeding plan Horticulture. You know, every, everything's yeah. slaughtered out in this first generation and we're just waiting after that. So you understand why they're doing it, but at the same time, it's kind of like everything doesn't need to be explained. Well, the, the time, the actual time spans of things in the Dune universe tends to be a little absurd, right? <laughs> 10 million years. It's like, this, is that necessary? We've gotten there in like 5,000 years. I don't know. So, but I guess if you're creating the Kwisatz Haderach, it takes time. If you had a computer, it'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. If you had a computer, you could have done this in like maybe three generations, but I decided just wetware only. <laughs> yeah, and the, the Ben Jether weren't really like a huge focus of, of this book, but of course we, we, we have the, the key characters. We know that Princess Irlachi, she is trained as Ben Jezzeret. Uh, we see that some of her sisters end up uh, going to the school for shorter or for, for, for longer periods. Uh, we see uh, Lady Margot and we see... Um, uh, Reverend Mother Mohayam. 
So, uh, Rachel, what was your impression of the Ben and Jesuit overall in, in, in this couple specifically? Uh, I think that they were kind of like spiders in the quarter, right? Definitely manipulating and pulling strings, but we don't get to see it because we're in the point of view of people who are themselves being manipulated. Um, but, you know, we know that they are. Uh, I really love Chalice and her just complete inability to deal. And then they like ship her off to Wallach 9. And then she's like, this is too hard. They want me to read. They want me to like exercise in the morning and like no i'm going back to the palace because all i want to do all day is like eat cheetos and like watch cartoon network or whatever it is that she does um i loved her as a character she was hilarious um i felt bad for her because she was clearly just not cared for like her sister cared about her but you know it didn't seem like her, her father did very much um so i liked getting into that sort of like the benny jesuit as a noble uh, boarding house, right? Because we, you know, we knew Erilyn is trained. We know that Jessica's trained. So we have all of these like noble characters who have been trained as Benny Jesuit and have all these abilities and are really smart and they are useful spies and know everything about everything. But there's also just people that get shipped off to the Benny Jesuit school and just kind of suck at it. <laughs> and um, that made it a little bit more relatable for me because I would never make it. <laughs> I would never make it. Um, yeah, the I liked and, and you know, Mohim coming in and just kind of like giving little tendrils of information to move people from one room to the next. Um, and even I loved the scene where she's speaking with Irulan uh, in the garden room in the Fenring's palace uh, and the butterfly comes and like lands on her face and she ignores it and uh, the symbolism of that and. It felt very cinematic. It felt like something I could have seen in one of the new movies, right? It's dark. You can feel like the dripping of the water and like the butterfly going by with like a dramatic piece of light just like slashing over her face or something. Um, so she's there. She knows everything. Um, but she's not a main character in this book because if she was, then it, her presence, I think, would overwhelm others, like the new people. Yeah, we've also got House Arconan as well, and they're, they're kind of tra they're trapped in the middle between the uh, the Empire, uh, House Carino, and the Fremen, um, taking hits from both sides on Arrakis. And that was that was kind of fun just to see the the Baron suffering a little bit. As you say, they're minor characters as well in the background, just there for yes. House Arconan as 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 yeah, com comedic relief, I guess. <laughs> <'Cause it's> just... <laughs> Come in, get punched, get like made fun of, <laughs> outmaneuvered constantly. And all they care about, all he cares about is his, he's essentially committing tax fraud with his spice, right? So that's all he cares about. He's like, oh God, they're going to look at the books. Do we have good <laughs> books? Are our books like, let's, let's point them down there. And then you run that way and get the other books <laughs> and swap them. What are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, we, we also see a hint that, uh, or... Yeah, always indications of Raban's incompetence and uh, uh, they're like, so he, you know, the, the Fremen are like uh, infiltrating Cartag um, uh, and Eric Keen and then like uh, Raban actually, he does un uncover, you know, like the, the plots going on, uh, but then like uh, he, he lets the Fremen get away and then it's the Imperial forces who are actually able, able to catch them later on and, you know, they're, they're surprised and you feel both, both the Baron and, and Raban, like they're, they're sweating in front of the, the, the Emperor, you know, like, uh, yeah, I think that, Go, go, it's a really embarrassing uh, moments for, for them as, as well in, the, in this book. Like, uh, yeah. 
a rocket says vacation. Like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Shadam's like, let me think. Where do I want to go? I know. Um, I would love to talk about Lincecia because she's that scene that she has where she. So she's been sort of. Irulan Jr. up until this point, right? Like, just unlucky to have been born in, you know, in the wrong order. So she doesn't get to do all the fun stuff. She's like the backup, backup kid. Um, and we know that she ends up being really uh, arch and and ambitious later on. So we see those those inklings of her character. And I loved the scene between her and Mako where he thinks that he's got the upper hand and she's like actually dude i've got the upper hand and she's just so happy she's so thrilled with herself that she's figured it out and she's gonna just get him um i loved that for her <laughs> yeah that, that particular plot device was a little bit convenient i think uh but yes it, it certainly made for um an interesting confrontation between them uh, but yeah, I mean, I had the problem when I was reading it. I was just imagining a young Susan Sarandon oh. uh, for her character because that's the only visual we've got of her is from the Children of Doom miniseries, um, where she's uh, an excellent villain. Yeah, and they've made so they aged her up for that. Yeah, yeah, she's meant to be the younger sister, but uh, you're not going to turn down Susan Sarandon when she wants to appear in the Doom miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, you're right. It was super convenient. And also, like, the first question anybody would ask is, what are those codes and can I also have them? Um, <laughs> so it seems like it just kind of, like, went off into the ether. But like, maybe that points to this kind of overarching theme of the incompetence of the Imperial Navy, right? Where yeah. people just don't know the manuals about their own <laughs> ships. Um, that happens a lot, actually, right? Like, people don't know who's standing behind them on the bridge. People don't know where people go at night and who they know or who their friends are. And, yeah, uh, they're definitely ripe for conquering, I think, at this moment in, his, in Shaddam's history. And they keep, they keep saying, oh, well, the Karinos have ruled for 10,000 years or whatever. And stability is important. And then other people say, well, yeah, but it, it we, that's fine. Stability is is from like a macro point of view, isn't you. It's just the same people doing the same thing forever. We don't need you to do that. We've got plenty of other people that can do that. So. Yeah, and I think that that's that's part of it. You know, the lack of the um, the AI, like uh, that type of technology, the universe, no computers. It, it does sort of make sense that they you know gone back to this this feudal setup and even like a world like Kaitain that it's. Know has, has all this splendor and uh, modernity that knowledge does does get lost. Um, that mm -hmm. you know it's, it's been ten thousand years and like from from one emperor to another and like each of them have had a very long, uh, long reign because they they lived longer because of the, the spice. So I guess it does make sense in in a way that uh, that there are all these secrets uh, that that are put together and probably like a lot of these, these records are still held you know like on in libraries you know and you have to actually actually go go and uh, dig into things as when Sissy was, was, was doing to find out about this information. Yeah, yeah. And then she took that book and put it in a room and didn't share it with anyone else because she knew it gave her an advantage. <laughs> I think we need more Mentats. I think we need an army of Mentats to <laughs> yeah. just collectively like know stuff because, yeah, it seems like the Mentats are few and far between. 
Yeah, no, no. So that was, it was great seeing a lot of uh, cartoon. We, we got to see also on Arrakis a lot more of life on the siege. And uh, as mentioned, there were, we, we saw Chani uh, and, and uh, Jamis and their interactions. Mm-hmm. So it was, uh, yeah, also, also tie into what, we, what we've seen um, a bit more of in the, in the film uh, adaptation about how they, they were, they, they knew each other and they had fought, fought together uh, before. Uh, so we got to see more of the, the Fremen and the, the Razir raids. Uh, but we also got to see the, the character of uh, Kuro, his uh, Chani's um, half uh, brother. Uh, so, what did you think, Rachel, about the, the interaction uh, family on, on um, between Liet, uh, Chani, and Koro? I think Koro was meant to be like the quintessential Fremen kind of character as a foil for Chani. Like, you know, she he was everything that she could be if she rejected the knowledge that her father offered her. Um, not just, not just you know, the ecological knowledge, but political knowledge and, and just kind of the how and why of, of where Arrakis is in the, in the Imperium and, and why people are interested in it and why the Harkonnens are there, you know, because like the Fremen don't care. For them, it's a, it's, it's a very um, cut and dry thing. Like the Harkonnens suck, they're enslaving us, they're stealing from us, let's get rid of them. Um, and Liat is like, well, yes, but I'm an agent of both places and I understand the point of view of both. And so he's trying to impart that knowledge on Chani and whether or not she accepts everything that he has to say, you know, is part of her character. But Koro does reject everything that Liat has to say. He doesn't, he thinks that he's not a real Fremen, you know, he, um, blames him in a way, I think for his own father's death because he was there, uh, when that happened. Um, and then he has to carry Liette's name, which he also hates. Um, and then his Fremen name, which was supposed to be like a cyclone, like a sandstorm, um, also very symbolic of his position. Um, so yeah, he's constantly pulling at Chani to be more Fremen, which I think would do her a little bit of a disservice knowing what's coming for her um, and what she's going to have to be dealing with. Uh, I, he's he's one of the minor characters that I've kind of forgotten a little bit about uh, as as you're talking about him bits of it of coming back but uh, uh, yeah he's as you say he's very much the foil for for Cheney in this uh, he's 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 one of the paths that she can take she can follow her father's path or she can follow uh, Har- uh, Harper's path um, but uh, yeah uh, as you say with Cheney uh, becoming effectively you know, empress of the universe, that that power, uh, that knowledge of the Imperium, all the lessons that her father taught her are going to become very important for her future life. Yeah, just being able to hold the duality within herself and mm-hmm. be okay with that and navigate it, I mean, absolutely essential for what's coming for her. She She's... I mean, yeah, she still wants to go out and knife people and fight and like, you know, <laughs> be a cool Fremen in, in the desert um, and like look at all the sand and look at the sky and be like, yeah, this is it. This is, this is the vibe. But she doesn't really get to do that later on. So, you know, she's got to navigate all this stuff. Um, most of it put there by Irulan, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's cool to kind of like see her in the, her training grounds versus Irulan's training grounds <laughs> and how that serves them later. Um, yeah, I... I, you know, Coral, I knew kind of like, oh, well, he's not in Dune. He's not going to make it or he's not important or he's going to end up somewhere where it doesn't matter. So like in that way, his arc didn't get me as much. But 
as like a way for Chani to have like a physical embodiment of the struggle within her. I thought he was kind of a clever use. Even if we're always, it does feel like we're constantly populating the Dudaverse with just more and more characters who seem to have uh, intimate connections to our main characters that we've never heard of before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's the same in the Star Wars as well, isn't it? There's always a half-brother or a twin sister or a, yeah, a granddaughter exactly. that you've never heard of before. It's like, oh, I up. knew your father, and here's a spinoff that explains <laughs> how, even though I've never mentioned it. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it was interesting seeing his perspective, though, because, um, you know, when we read the original novel, it feels like uh, Liet is, you know, like he's widely respected and seen, seen as a prophet uh, himself across all the Fremen. But uh, with, with Quirrell, like he, he, he actually like hated Liet from, from one angle. I mean, like, uh, I mean, he, he respected him, but also like he blames Liet for his, for his own father's uh, death. And uh, although he, he sees him as a father figure, at the same time, he resents him that that's... Uh, because of the, the incident where, where, where his, his father died. Uh, so, so that was, that was interesting. Like, and he actually dares to challenge Liet also in front of uh, other Fremen as well. So there, there was that, that, uh, that tension that was, uh, you know, w w was almost uh, shocking in a sense w w when you only see from the perspective of, you know, Liet being, being this almost to this, uh, yeah, this um, religious leader almost among the Fremen who is he's bringing them towards their, uh, their promised land of, you know, transforming the, the whole planet. I think that's good, too, because the Fremen can often be written off as this kind of ignorant population that's being controlled with religion, that's be, that just doesn't know that they're being controlled. But Coral kind of represents the thinking Fremen, right? And like he may we may disagree with him. We may think this is a terrible idea where you're, you know, there's no plan, this half plan that you've thought about for 12 seconds to go and get yourself like in trouble and arrested. Um, but it's nice to think that, OK. Even if you're a person of religious influence in the Fremen community, you still have your opponents. Um, they're not just going to blindly do what you say just because it's, you know, connected to their religion, which I, I liked because kind of that characterization of the Fremen as this like ignorant indigenous population is can be problematic. So it kind of brings it forward. It helps develop them a little bit. Okay, so I think. Let's do a round table. So I actually like uh, looking through this uh, this book. I also read it more uh, more recently. That there there is actually a lot of uh, interesting uh, moments that 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 that's, uh, that's stayed stayed with me. So let's do a round table. And uh, what was your highlight uh, uh, from from the, from the book? So uh, Mark, I'll start with you. Uh, I think one of my favorite parts is where Koro uh, no no not Koro uh, Marco Moku. Um, has to make that decision to disobey a direct order from his uh, superior but woefully inept commander. Uh, and that scenario that was constructed for the novel, uh, I thought worked very well, it was uh, well set up and felt um, realistic, if you like, as opposed to hidden secret codes for a backdoor on all the, the starships. So I, I, I liked that scene and I liked his setup as as taking command of a rebellion almost um, by accident. Uh, that, that was one of my favorite scenes right at the start. Uh, my, one of my favorite scenes, I think, was, I, you know, I enjoyed a lot more of the, the stuff happening on the Carino side than I did on, on Chani's side. Um, I think that there was just more happening and a little bit like more characters on that end because that's where Mako was. And um, 
I loved, I, as I said, I loved the confrontation between Wencesia, Wencesia and, uh, and Mako. But I think in terms of like the Arakeen scenes, I really enjoyed when Chani got to speak with the shutout mapes because it, it was more of like a highlight of like, this is, you have an opportunity here uh, and you need to use it. And I think that, you know, again, Chani's only 14 in this book. She had to do a little bit of growing up. Um, so I thought that was a really useful scene with the iconic character. Uh, but yeah, I like the space stuff was just fun. Anytime anybody got to knife somebody in the neck and do insurrection and and be like, actually, I'm doing this for the you know for the Imperium. You're bad, and I still it the the kind of like stuff. I don't know. It was just funny and and very like it felt like an RPG to me. Like that somebody was just like playing in the Dune universe. It's like, who are you going to be? Well, I'm going to be a rebel commander. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah, I think for, for me, the, the moment that really stood up was uh, also towards the, towards the end of the book and it happens on, on Arakeen. So um, uh, Shani and uh, Kuro and uh, Jamis and uh, about 20 or more other Fremen have, have been captured and basically they, they've been uh, uh, arrested for like plot to to assassinate the emperor who, who's who's there at the time, and it's it's pretty clear like as as for the policy that they're going to be uh, executed, um, uh, like a, w w within a few days, and um, yeah, Leah Le Le learns learns about that, and and he goes to Erkin and he he talks to uh to Princess Erlon and he he appeals uh, to her, and then we see like uh Erlon she she gets um she talks to uh Reverend Mother Mohai and gets get advice for her, but in the end it's it's her decision. You know what was what's going to happen there, and she takes the, the decision to uh, you know re release all of them and like with with, with no uh, no consequences for them that they, they can they can go go free, and uh, you know it's it's um I mean the, the position she she's in like she, she's not going to face too much repercussions. I mean of course she she probably gets a slap on the wrist from from the emperor, but you know like she she's not like in any danger because of that. But the, the way that she, she made the decision that has a like um. A long uh, impact on road because then the Fremen they're, they're realizing that okay, like it's uh, actually maybe the em emperor and and uh, House Greeno aren't that, that bad, you know. And we see that uh, you know they're, they're grateful that that they're released, they're they're, they're alive. So I, I thought that was uh, interesting. But just by taking that that decision, maybe it wasn't a huge consequence for 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 Irlan herself. But you know, she she took charge. She did the decision that she thought was right. And in some way that that, that had uh, positive impacts on on Fremen and, and their perception of uh, of House Krino. But it was it did have a huge impact on her life because she inadvertently moved Chani into back onto the board, and yeah. Yeah, she becomes an obstacle for her later. Um, yeah, that's I think that's some of those like near miss, you know, misses. It's like we did, we know they don't meet, but here's how they impacted each other. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. I, I wonder if she ever does does realize that. I like you know like I, 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 I thought she'd go and she gets close because she was like, oh, one of them was uh, a servant. She was posing as a servant in, in the house. Like, yeah, do you have a file? Do you want to look at that later? Uh, it it does seem absolutely impossible that they would just be let go with no with no consequences. But such is the impact of Liette, right? We can't underestimate how charismatic Liette was. Yeah, and it shows that Irulan is trying to be more 
a more thoughtful leader than her father who was rules with an iron fist and uh, any problem just needs to send the Sada car after them. Seems to be his policy. And, uh, Irulan is aware of the politics and the repercussions for every decision and will try and balance that uh, for the greater good. Um, so it's, it's a shame that she didn't have, uh, wasn't able to take a more active role in the Imperium earlier in the story. Yeah, she's just totally been put on ice, right? Yeah. Like, I guess we're just supposed to think, oh, she was studying for this entire time. But she has so many skills. Like, again, she uses poison at the end, right? Which we know is her weapon of choice. Um, and she she has absolutely no qualms about it. She doesn't feel anything about it. She doesn't. Whereas I feel like when, like, when, when Chani is shown to be killing people, she's positioned as like a little bit regretful or at least honoring of like the life she's taking right like with the tailaxu like abominations <laughs> you know she kind of feels bad for them even you know in a way um but everyone doesn't feel bad about killing people <laughs> nope <laughs> all right so let's go ahead and do like our one of one of conclusions um so would, would you recommend your this book final thoughts uh start with, with you rachel would I recommend this book? Yeah, I think I would. I think if you enjoy the prequels, you're going to enjoy this. I, um, it's it centers two of the best female characters in the you know in the Dune universe, and in, when they're younger, so they get to do more. Um, I think that the the Imperial kind of uh, Navy plot is really fun. Um, you do get glimpses into the Guild, although we have decided that maybe it's not as satisfying a glimpse. Um, yeah, I recommend it. I think that I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed like the house books for sure. And Mark, you you wrote a full written, written review on uh, on digitalnet.com, so uh, we, we we know that you gave it the, the good score. Any further thoughts? Uh, no, just echoing uh, what everyone said. Really, it's 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 a nice standalone book. It's only one book, so you're not having to commit yourself to a trilogy. Um, it features some important characters, but. Um, isn't so overloaded with all the background that you need to have read 15 other books before you start this book. Um, so if you're looking for a quick read, uh, an enjoyable read set in the Dewey universe, um, yeah, I, you could do a lot worse. Yeah, and I, as I mentioned earlier on, like I think this this works for for both the, um, I guess the, the new fans and people who have. Uh, Red Red Dune already for for a longer time because you know it does expand on characters you know about from from the book it get, you know gives you more more time with uh, with characters that you wish had had more time in the in the original novel so from that aspect it works really well and then for the new fans who are maybe you know they haven't even read the book and they're just coming into the movie and this offers a tie in in a way I still recommend that they they read the read the Dune book first but even if, if not I think this this is a, a great tie in to the to the current. Yeah, I have two comments about that. One, I think that both of the characterizations of them sort of are in line with the way that they've been portrayed in the new films. Um, and my second uh, point is that if you look in the acknowledgments of this book, they specifically call out what was then called uh, sis what the Sisterhood of Dune and that is now called the Dune Prophecy um, about how they were writing this book while they were thinking about making that show and those decisions. So it could be that the themes that are explored in this novel are going to be similar to the themes explored in that season, um, depending. I mean, we know it's changed a little bit since then, but this is what was in their minds when they were working on the, the spinoff series. So I think it's a, a great um, 
thematic and uh, kind of vibey piece if you are enjoying the new film universe. Yeah, that, that's a good, a good point that you brought up uh, in terms of uh, doing, doing prophecy, uh, because I, I can imagine, you know, with the, um, the, the royal sisters, like going to the, um, to the mother school on, on Wallach 9, I can yeah. imagine that that's going to be like uh, hinting at what could be in the, in the, in the, doing the TV series with, with the sisterhood. I'm sure we're going to have some representation from the, from the royal family. And we know that the, uh, like the sisters who founded the school are Harkonnen sisters. So there, there's the Bene Gesserit and other form and the interaction with, with all the different, uh, noble houses and, uh, and the house Carino as well. Mm -hmm. And the, those interactions with like the sibling rivalry and two ambitious sisters sort of working in tandem and then maybe sometimes against each other is probably, yeah, maybe what we're going to be seeing. Hopefully that'd be fun. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've said that here on, on the show. I'm, I'm really looking forward uh, to, to the TV series, maybe even more so than, than the movies, just because it's, you know, it's, like, it's a fresh it's story. It's an opportunity. Yeah. For sure. So that's uh, it. We're going to go ahead and, and wrap up the, the show over here. So uh, yeah, it was 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 great uh, talking, Chris, to do and dive into this uh, this book, uh, touching on the expanded uh, lore. Uh, so um, yeah, let's go ahead and sign off. Uh, Rachel, where, where can people uh, find out uh, more about you? Yeah, thanks for having me. This was really fun. You can find me on uh, Instagram at Darth underscore Rachel, where I post mostly about the costuming uh, that I make, like this guy. Uh, and if you like uh, my takes on stuff, you can find me at Buckkeep Radio. That's where we're, we've read the entire series of Realm of the Elderlings by Robin Hobb. Um, you can also find me on Fire and Lunch, which is a Game of Thrones pod. And I have another pod called Read This Book <laughs> that uh, is just books, trade recommendations between me and another host. Um, and most of it is science fiction and fantasy. Hi, I'm glad to be back in uh, another great podcast. Uh, thank you to Rachel for, for joining us. Uh, great to meet you finally in real life. Uh, if anyone wants to follow me, I'm doing info uh, on all the socials. Yeah, and this is uh, Marcus uh, Gabriel, your editor at dunesnet.com. Find me writing at dunesnet.com and uh, on at Dunes Newsnet, uh, posting various uh, updates on on the Woofy news. Uh, so yeah, like uh, we're approaching the Woofy, a lot coming up. So you can look forward to more news, reviews, and interviews. Until then, take care. We hope you've enjoyed Dune Talk. Remember to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications so you know when the next episode drops. Stay tuned to DuneNewsNet.com and add us to your social feeds. Be the first to hear breaking news and reviews.